We learned last, uh, in the last Psalm, in Psalm 56, we learned whenever I'm afraid, whatever the trouble, whatever the enemy, whatever the circumstance, whatever is causing me to be afraid, he says, whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you. I'll have these uh, emotions of fear, but I will, by means of knowing who you are and what you have promised, I will trust in you. That is what it means to be a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to respond to God's faithfulness with faith. It means to respond to, to knowing who God is, what he has done for you, and the future that he has promised, and respond with faith, with glad-hearted faith. It's a gift. It's a gift that you have. It's a gift that we have that we can deepen our souls, actually trust God in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the trouble, before it's all solved, because we know who he is and what he has promised to give us. When we trust in the faithfulness of God and whenever we are afraid, we find this, the, the fear subsides and praise ensues. That last psalm, verse 3 and 4, whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? Ah, sigh of relief. I trust in God. But troubles still come. We still live in a world of trials and temptations. In Psalm 57, we, we learn that the psalm singer, now trusting in God, we understand, we learn what he does when those troubles continue to come. So this psalm is for the one who last week turned from fear to faith and a deeper trust in God and then woke up on Monday morning only to find those gnarly problems still staring you in the face. Because they do. And so the next psalm continues this instruction. And it's a beautiful psalm. It's, it, it has some, some Hebrew poetry in it that I want to explain to you to help you see where he's going. It, it, it can seem like he's flying all around, but it's actually, it's actually laid out very, very nicely for us. And I also want you to notice the inscription um, to set the stage. Um, uh, many of the psalms we've seen in the 50s tell us when, um, when David wrote this psalm or what he's referring to. Uh, this one as well says that, that uh, it's a mictum of David when he fled from Saul into the cave. When he fled from Saul into the cave. Now, there's two instances we have in Scripture where he flees into a cave and hides. There may have been more times, but there are two instances given us in Scripture. The first is when David hid in the cave of Adullam in 1 Samuel 22, and that follows the events that we had been following in the previous Psalms. So many think that's, that, that it's referring to that time. But there's a second instance as well, when David and his men were hiding in the recesses of a cave near En Gedi in 1 Samuel 24. Now that was the time that David snuck up on Saul when Saul was relieving himself in the cave. David cut off a piece of his garment but did not kill Saul. Remember his compatriots who were with him said, the Lord has delivered him into your hand, go and kill him. And he goes and he cuts a piece, just cuts a piece of the garment. So he can later on declare to, to Saul what he has done. But his, even, even cutting the robe of, of the anointed bothers him. And so he doesn't. He, does, he doesn't go against, uh, he doesn't try to kill Saul. He's just trying to flee from Saul. And, and possibly this incident may fit better with the instructions given to the chief musician in, we see in the beginning of, uh, of 57. It says, to the chief musician, set to, and then this Hebrew word is, is translated best, do not destroy. Do not destroy. 
Now that title that, or that song or that setting that is, that is being given for this psalm is given for, to, in four other psalms or four psalms total, three other psalms. The, the next two psalms also are, are, are uh, mentioned um, as being songs that are to be set to this phrase, do not destroy, 57, 58, and 59, and then one more time in Psalm 75. Now, the reason I want to tell you all that is because, interestingly, all of these psalms, in, in some degree, deal with pleadings to God for God to judge the wicked because we know that he is the one who needs to bring vengeance. So he's calling upon God to bring the vengeance and not that, which, which seems to set it into that incident with David refusing to kill Saul, but rather to trust that God will bring vengeance. God has promised to bring him into the kingdom, and God will take care of it. And so we, we know, we know as Christians, we are not to return evil for evil. Rather, we are to give place for God's wrath. This is instructed to us in, in, uh, in Romans. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21. This is only possible, though, to, to not return evil for evil, to be the kind of person who doesn't bring his own vengeance, his own revenge upon another. It only occurs when we understand that it's not that vengeance is bad, but that vengeance is God's. He does a better job of it than we do. Otherwise, we end up with a Hatfield-McCoy thing that just never ends. Blood, blood revenge just goes on and on. But it, instead, if we trust God to, to, to return a, an appropriate vengeance, an appropriate justification to those who have been harmed, we find that we're able to join with, with God saying, vengeance is mine, and, and believe him, vengeance is God's. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so we're not to return evil for evil, and we see in this psalm that, that David is entrusting God to take care of his problem. So we, we, we don't see in this psalm that he's afraid. We see instead that he is trusting God and turning over to God to take care of the trouble. So one other thing I want to do is set, set the psalm, because this is the way I'm going to walk through the psalm. I'm going to walk through it kind of from the middle and go out. Here's the reason why. Um, the psalm can be broken down into basically two parts, um, the, each with three stanzas, stanzas and then a chorus. So the end, the, the end, both with verse 5 and verse 11, which is that chorus, it's repeated, be exalted, O God, above the heavens, let your glory be above all the earth. And then, but, but uh, James Boyce lays this out for me, I, I, I think he's correct. He says, we see an A, B, C pattern, chorus, and then going in reverse, CBA, chorus structure. What we're going to notice, what I want you to, we're going to notice is that stanzas C deal with David's enemies and the danger he is in. Look at verse 4. My soul is among lions. I lie, I, I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. This is describing the, his enemies. Then is the chorus then begins the next verse, so to speak, and it is the same stanza, the same idea. Verse 6, they have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have dug a pit before me, and it goes on. Okay, so that's the C section. Coming out from the middle is the B section, where we deal with God's faithfulness to David in verses 2 and 3, and then David's faithfulness before God in verses 7 and 8. So take a look at 2 and 3. I will cry out to God most high, to God who performs all things for me. He shall send from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. 
So that's David's faithfulness before God, but that's resting, uh, or he's trusting God's faithfulness to him. And then in verses 7 and 8, we hear of David's faithfulness. My heart is steadfast, or fixed, O God. My heart is steadfast, he repeats. I will sing and give praise. Awake my glory. Awake lute and harp. I will awaken the dawn. And then finally, the stanza A on either side of this, of this psalm, verses 1 um, and verses uh, 9 and 10. And, and this ends, so we have a cry for mercy, crying out to God for mercy in verse 1. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will make my refuge. And then we have on the other side of it, a la- again, a crying out, but this time a loud, vibrant praise, that, uh, and going out to all of the nations of God's mercy. So 9 and 10, I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations. For your mercy, there it is, reaches unto the heavens and your truth unto the clouds. So he's praying for mercy and then he declares God's mercy in in those stanzas. In the middle or in the middle and then at the end is the theme The theme of this psalm, verse uh, 5 and then again verse 11. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. If If you were to work your way through this psalm, if you were to meditate upon this psalm as we are going to, where should we end? We should end with praise that wants God to be exalted and we want him exalted above all of the heavens. We want his glory to be above all the earth. And that theme actually is is found in in the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Father in heaven, hallowed or be exalted be your name. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And in fact, what we're saying is hallowed be your name. Exalted be your name upon all the earth just as it is in heaven. May your kingdom come upon upon the earth just as it is in heaven. And may may your will be done upon the earth just as it is in heaven. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. When you you sing, when you you, uh, pray this prayer, when you pray Psalm 57, the Lord's prayer should be on your lips as well. So what I want to do is walk through the psalm and and show how his heart develops to that end as we go through the stanzas. We're going to be taking a look at verses 4 through 6 and then, um, well, 4 through 6, which is 4 and then 6, that stanza with the the chorus in the middle to begin with. So again, describing his enemies, David finds himself in a dark time and not just a dark cave. So they're hiding in this dark cave. Um, and if it is Psalm, if it is First uh, Samuel twenty-four, he has six hundred men with him. How do six hundred men hide in a cave? Well, there are caves that run that deep, in, in caverns that run under, under the mountains. Um, th- there is. I remember once I was in Virginia, and we went and visited the Luray Caverns, and we went down into those caverns, and they take you down, and then they turn out and they have just a little bit of light for you as you get down, and they take this huge number of people down with them, and you go down, and they turn off all the lights, and it is abs- I mean, it's, I've never felt darkness like I felt darkness down in there. You can hide that way. And if you've got water running through those caverns, then you, it's, it's easy to hide because there's this noise that keeps um, you from being able to hear what's going on around you. So you have this kind of water noise and absolute darkness. David is hiding down there with his men as Saul and his troops are coming and searching for him. So they're down there hiding, and, and I, I think it's, there's this dark cave, but more importantly, he's just in this dark time. Saul wants to kill him. And another opportunity is about to take place. His enemy wants him destroyed. 
And he begins to describe what this enemy is like. My soul is among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. Well, Saul, Saul has, has lost the anointing of the Lord. Saul is in the, 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 the perils of being under um, spirits who are attacking him. And this reminds us of who the devil is and what the devil wants to do. The devil is a dragon and a lion, seeking whom he may devour. Psalm, Proverbs 28.15 says, Like a roaring lion and a charging bear is a wicked ruler over poor people. And Peter reminds us, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Peter would know this psalm, and it would, it, this would bring it to mind. But he tells us, Peter tells us, then, what are we to do? 1 Peter 5, 9, resist him steadfast in the faith. Resist him steadfast in the faith. And he's speaking to saints who are under persecution, some kind of suffering. He says, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. He again is saying what we've been saying over and over again. Troubles come to all of us. Troubles just, just fly like sparks, Job says. All around us, troubles come. So when you see that this is the work of the enemy, of the fall, of the world, of your own sinful flesh, you are to stand fast, be steadfast, fixed in your faith, knowing that you're not really receiving more troubles than others. You're not really receiving that different of troubles as others, although yours are very specific to you. But we live in a world where troubles come. Troubles come in our bodies, troubles come in our, our relationships, troubles come in our circumstances, troubles come in this life. These psalms are so helpful because they, they teach us how to handle them differently than the rest of the world. So David, David says um, uh, that he is more, that, that, that this animal, this lion, this dragon is more than David can handle. And so he sings from the cave in verse 5. And in the psalm, such singing changes everything. Because as he sings, hiding in the cave, he's, he, he's finding God to be his refuge and his enemy falls into the net prepared for him. Or at least he knows that he's going to. Look again at verse 6. They prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have dug a pit before me. They're, they're going to get me. But he says... Into the midst of it, they themselves have fallen. Right in between, though, those two is that first chorus. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. And what does this praise bring but answers? And we have um, in, uh, in, in Psalm, uh, 1 Samuel 24, 4, the men said to David, this is the day which the Lord said, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And as I mentioned, he, he goes secretly, as, as Saul goes into the cave, and he cuts off a corner of his robe. And then, and then so, so what has hap what's happened at that very moment? Well, Saul has been delivered over. In the very pit that has been prepared for David, for David to be destroyed, there he is. There's Saul, and Saul can be destroyed. Saul is not, but David can go out and listen to him as he speaks to Saul. As he comes out of the cave and he cries out to Saul. He says, David also arose, went out of the cave and called out to Saul saying, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stopped with his face to the earth and bowed down. 
And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, indeed, David seeks your harm? Look, this day your eyes have seen the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave. And someone urged me to kill you, but my eyes spared you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. Know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand. I'm not going to return evil for evil. And I have not sinned against you. Yet you hunt my life to take it. Let the Lord judge between you and me. And let the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. Do you hear his confidence? He's he's being surrounded by an army that's going to kill him, that is set on killing him. And yet he stands trusting the Lord, will not turn to wickedness himself, and even will stand out in the cave and declare to Saul, exalting God the Lord to be the one who is going to deliver him, and the one to whom all should bow. I, I wonder if Daniel knew this psalm and sung this psalm. Daniel would say as he's delivered from the lion's den, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Dave, uh, Daniel finds God taking vengeance then the very next verse is it says that those who had accused Daniel, causing him to be thrown into the den, the king takes and takes those who accused them and their wives and their children and throw them into the same lion's den and the lions fall upon them and eat them all. But Daniel didn't do it. Daniel trusted in the Lord. David trusted in the Lord. They would not take their hand and act wickedly, returning evil for evil. But they try with the confidence in the Lord, they walk through these circumstances, they walk through these troubles, and they watch God. They watch God deliver them through the troubles. We're going to see this. This is, this is what really what is said in the very first verse. We'll look at it in just a moment. But let's, let's pull out here now to, the, to this middle section, this B section, verses 2 and 3, and then 7 and 8 where we find out that in, in the midst of a dark cave, in the midst of your deepest troubles, what are you to do? You're to cry out to God. But, but, but I thought I said, well, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. When I am afraid, I will trust in you does not mean that you just sit back and do nothing. When I'm afraid and I trust in you means that now I cry out to God. I go to him who I, in whom I trust. And God works through those prayers. So, two and three. I will cry out to God, most high, to God who performs for me. Actually, the Hebrew just says, to God who performs for me. We insert all things to help, help understand. It's just like, it's, it's tabula rasa. It's just blank paper. God performs for me. He shall send from heaven. It shall come down from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. So this cry for mercy is urgent, sincere, and repeated. For David's situation is dire. Verse 1, he'll say, be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, he cries out. But listen to David's confidence and the effectualness of his prayer. In, in verse, verses 2 and 3, 3 particularly, 
Why does he cry out to God? Why would he turn to God with regard to the particular circumstance he finds? He says four reasons. First, God performs all things for me. That's what he knows about God. Second, he shall send from heaven and save me. He shall send from heaven and save me. Third, he reproaches the one who would swallow me up. And fourth, God shall send forth his mercy and truth. And mercy and truth show up again and again in, in, this, um, in this psalm. So, God is, uh, so David is crying out to God. And the psalm singer's trust in God's faithfulness to him produces a confident and steadfast heart in the psalm singer who must sing and give praise. Why should you be faithful to God? And why should you hold on in that faith to God? Because God is faithful to you. So God's faithful to you first. God's faithful to you first. And your response, if you understand it, if God's spirit shows you, if you hear his word and you take it into your heart, things start to change in your soul like you see changing in David's soul. And the change that takes place is you begin to see God's faithfulness to you in ways maybe you've never seen before, never you've never noticed before. And as you see God's faithfulness to you, you become faithful to him. You become steadfast to him. God is, our God is not up in heaven with his arms crossed, waiting to see whether or not you're going to be faithful before he does anything, before he decides to be faithful. He is not up in heaven testing you with his arms crossed, refusing to bless you until you really prove yourself worthy. No, our God is up in heaven and he performs for us. Our God is up, up, up in heaven and he puts down troubles. How many troubles has he put down in your life when you weren't trusting in him? Come on now. How many times has he faithfully delivered you from all kinds of troubles when you weren't trusting him? And by the way, I, I would encourage you, write those down. Write down those answers to little prayers you made that... You didn't even think God was ever going to do. Because you need to build a storehouse to remind you of how faithful God is to you and to yours. It's because tomorrow more troubles come. And he's going to be faithful again. And he's faithful again so that you grow in faithfulness to him. Because he is so faithful to David, David would say, verses 7 and 8, my heart is fixed. It's anchored. My heart is steadfast. O oh Lord. O oh God. I will sing and give praise. And then he says, Awake, my glory. Awake, my glory. What does that mean? Awake, my glory. Matthew Henry says, Awake, my glory means to open up his tongue with elevated words of glory to God. To awake your glory is to sing. To make poetry, to use elevated words to, to bring praise and glory and honor to God. And that happens from a heart that is fixed, that is steadfast. Uh, no desire to sing comes from hearts that aren't steadfast and fixed. Desire to sing, give me another one to sing, comes from hearts that are steadfast, cannot believe what God is doing cannot believe who God is, is over, are overwhelmed by his goodness, his grace, his mercy, and truth. And so he says, awake my glory, 
Awake, lute and harp. Come on, instruments. We got to make this louder. And then even awake the dawn. I'm done with the darkness. I'm done with the darkness in the cave. Come on, son. He awakens all of creation to join with him in singing and exalting God because he sees that, that, uh, that he's taken care of. In, uh, Paul would write in, in 2 Corinthians verse 4, he says, uh, chapter 4, um, verse 6, he says, For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In the same way that God commanded light to come out of darkness. How, do you, how does he do that? Well, that's, that's just the word of God. That's, can, can you command light to come out? All you have is darkness, and you're going to make light? How do you, only God can do that. And only God can shine in your heart, in your dark heart, <clears throat> in that dark cave that your heart is. Only God can shine a light and, and, and shine a light to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And if he has given that to you, then awake your glory. Awake the lute and harp. Awake the dawn and declare the glory of the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has saved you. He has saved you out of the darkest cave of your soul. Singing with a steadfast heart in a cave brings forth glorious light. It parts the clouds and reveals the heavens. This is what the preaching and receiving of the gospel produces. This is what God's spirit does in the preaching and the receiving of these words. He grants light to your heart. He lightens your troubles. His burden all of a sudden becomes light and easy. And life is before you. Life that you see that you've never seen before. Here's what happens when you're justified in Christ. When you've been justified in Christ, made right before God, sins forgiven, then what you have is peace with God, grace to stand, hope of the glory of God, and glory in the tribulations. That is, in the cave. Listen to Romans chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith... Having, having the light of the gospel been brought to you, having been made right with God through Jesus Christ, what do you have now? Listen, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace, this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice, here comes the glory, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, Paul continues. Because Monday's coming, and there's going to be more trouble. We also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. David, psalm singer, his heart is steadfast. In faithfulness before God, how did he get there? He got there because he heard and received the faithfulness of the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ through God the Father to him. He knew God was for him. Remember Psalm 56? He knew God was for him. And that makes his heart steadfast. And that leads to glory and hope and grace and peace with God in the midst of tribulations. 
in the midst of the tribulations and troubles. That's the second part. That's the middle part. Now, to the outward. Uh, chiasms oftentimes run in such a way that you, you go to the center to get the main point. I think he's going the opposite way here. Here's, here's, the, here's, the, here's the big point to take away. Verse 1 and verses 9 and 10, um, uh, along with the chorus. David's in a cave, and it, but while he's in this cave, he sees himself in the shadow of God's wings. The cave has become for him like a shadow, a protection. But it's not just, it's, it's as though God himself is protecting him with his wings. He will stay there. And look at the end of this verse. He will stay there until these calamities have passed by. Which is so important to notice. He, he's, under the, he's singing for mercy to God. And he knows he's protected with God's wings. And the trouble is still there. He's going to stay there, and he's not leaving until the calamities have passed by. In the cave, he wasn't going to leave until the army went by. But actually, under the God's wings, we all are to stay until the calamity passes by. That's what we're told. That's what we see here in verse 1. He will stay there like a chick in danger, running under the wings of a mother hen. This is, way, this is what Jesus would say in, in, as he looked over Jerusalem. Jerusalem who went through so many troubles, so many trials, and refused, refused to come under the refuge of God's mercy. Refused to, to, to receive the words of the prophets. Instead, they killed the prophets. Refused to see that they were pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, they killed the Lord Jesus. And Jesus, as he approaches Jerusalem, he says to them, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. You missed it, he says. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Who's not willing here? Who's not willing to come under the care, the mercy, and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? The truth of the gospel, of the lordship of Jesus Christ over all things. As we were told earlier, look, there, there really are only two kind of people. There are those who love the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are those who hate the light because they love the darkness and they want Jesus gone. They don't want anything to do with Jesus. They don't want anything to do with his lordship. That's the, those are the choices. And, and Jesus says to you, you're like Jerusalem. How many times have I wanted to bring you in under, under my wings and under my protection, but you were not willing? It's a terrible, terrible words to hear. We don't want that. But David, David shows us the way out. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, he repeats. For my soul trusts in you. Fearful time again. My soul trusts in you. And in the shadow of your wings, I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. And crying out for mercy, I believe David is also remembering another place of wings. The mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, covered with the wings of the mighty cherubim, where God would reside in the Holy of Holies, underneath the shadow of the wings of those cherubim. He finds himself there because that is where God is. Note, though, with such confidence in God, David is not silent, as I mentioned in his troubles. With the confidence in God's sovereignty, he prays. 
He prays for mercy in his latest trial because he believes that God is merciful and gracious. But where do we turn when there's a great disaster? Where does our nation turn whenever there is a disaster? There is no cry from our leaders to turn to God, the shadow, and find our refuge and under the shadow of his wings. We call for FEMA or some other government agency. When a crisis hits, your Savior is revealed, whether it's a false idol or the true God. When you, when you find a cave to hide in, when, when God does provide providentially some circumstances, some people, some way out, some protection, do you realize that it's God that has provided his sovereign, merciful, um, his merciful wings for you? Where do you turn in great disasters? Where do you turn in minor troubles? Because in those minor troubles, that's the place to practice. That's the place to practice. Do you believe your God is that sovereign, that he actually does know the number of hairs on your head? He does know each and every circumstance that you find yourself in, that he has ordered these things, and that he is your sovereign, kind God. Can you believe he is that merciful and that gracious to you? Psalm 103 says, For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. Towards those who fear him, his mercy climbs above all of the clouds, up into the sky and the heavens. That's how much mercy he has for you. Under the mercy seat was housed the law of God, the ten words. And so this is where mercy and truth meet together. His mercy and truth covers every corner, every nation, and reaches unto the clouds of heaven. And so in verses 9 and 10, I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations, for your mercy reaches unto the heavens and your truth unto the clouds. Why? Why would we sing of God's, why sing of God's greatness to all of the nations? Because his mercy is that good, that powerful, that extensive. We are told to believe and then to act as though the gospel is going to go to all the corners of the earth. That that's how merciful God is. And he's given us, as his ambassadors, the opportunity to sing his praises, to reveal the grace and mercy we understand and have to all those around us and beyond. His mercy reaches to the heavens. And so this is where praise begins. Praise doesn't begin when everything's going right. Too often I hear people won't open their Bibles or they won't pray or they won't sing or they're not going to come to church because there's just too much trouble. I'm in a cave. It's dark. I'm not sure I'm going to get out of this one. That's where praise begins. Praise begins in the dark cave, in the back of the cave. When God gives a steadfast heart, that trusts him before the deliverance. And every tough situation you have or ever will be is swallowed up by the greatest tough situation you ever will face. We forget this. In fact, I think because we forget this, we have a hard time turning to God and trusting him in the smaller tough situations. What is your toughest situation? Your toughest situation is that you are a sinner under the judgment of God. And you are on your way 
to an eternity of condemnation and righteous wrath. That's your biggest trouble. That's everyone's biggest trouble. Has God taken care of that trouble for you? Can you only if you rest under the shadow of his wings in Jesus Christ. And for all of us, the thing that is because of that, all of us are going to die. Every one of you is going to die. And that's because of sin and the judgment upon our race and the fallen world that we live in. But Christians have no reason to fear death because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I, I think we don't rejoice enough in the resurrection of Jesus Christ because he's the first fruit of all resurrections because we don't want to think that much about our death. We'd just rather not push it away. We're, we're a society that hides people that are dying. We keep them away from us. We need to not be afraid of death. And we need to not be afraid of those who are dying. Because in Christ, we have the promise of the resurrection. Your approach, in, in your approaching death, and we're all approaching death, like the clock's ticking. And, and, and what are we doing in the midst of it? Well, we learn to praise God for the resurrection that's coming before we have died. We learn to praise God now for the resurrection that's coming. Do you know that your body is going to be raised from the dead if you're in Christ? And everything that was corrupt, and I got a long list of corruptions, everything that was corrupt is going to be left behind. And in the resurrection, all that will be is incorruptible glory. That would be you. You. Imagine yourself. Incorruptible glory. That's where this is heading if you're in Christ. But it's only headed one way, and that's through the cross, through the death and burial and resurrection in Jesus Christ, to that day of resurrection when you will be resurrected, and, and all sin, all the consequences of sin, all the time and problems that sin has brought, all of it goes away, and you are brought into an eternal, incorruptible glory in Jesus Christ. We should give praise now for the resurrection to come. Whenever we are in trouble, whenever we think we might die, Whenever we're afraid, whenever this life isn't going well, which is a lot of the time, what we should be doing, what this psalm is teaching me, what this psalm, psalm should teach you is that's when I should think about the resurrection. That's when I should think and remember everything is going to go right. God wins. Jesus wins. You win. It's all gift to you. It's all the perfect, powerful work of Jesus Christ at work in us. And that prepares us to praise God in all troubles. That's the only way I can obey God who says through Paul, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. How can I obey that? Only if I can see the resurrection and all that is coming for me and mine in the resurrection in that day. Praise and worship are not built on the foundation of sentiments. Praise and worship are built on the bedrock of trust and faith. Understand that mercy and truth are both in Jesus. John 1 says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The truth of who we are and who God is and the judgment that is to come. And the grace and mercy that promises, promises everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus to have it all forgiven.
all made right through him. And that's where we find refuge. How great is that mercy and how powerful that truth? When our hearts are anchored steadfast in Christ, then our praise needs to be louder and greater than his mercy and truth. It must reach the heavens. It must reach the nations. That is what has happened. That is what is happening. And that is what will happen. Habakkuk says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Father God, knowing who you are and what your son has accomplished for us for eternity and for the nations and how you protect your people unto eternity and subdue the nations, ruling over them in mercy and truth, let that rule our hearts and then may we find ourselves singing joy to the world, the Lord has come and he rules the world with truth and grace and that he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the troubles go, as far as the trials and sufferings lead. Do so, do so we pray to the glory of your name, in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing Joy to the World, but we're going to sing it to the tune that we sing in Psalm 98. I can see visitors here. There's words and music if you can read on the back of the bulletin. If not, you'll catch on in just a moment. Let's stand together and sing. From Matthew 26. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here.